0: Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey.
1: This series includes discussions of sensitive topics, including transphobia, homophobia, sexual violence, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Two days after police publicly announced an arrest in Nikki Kuhnhausen's murder, loved ones held a vigil in her hometown of Vancouver, Washington. It was December 20, 2019. The rain came down steadily while hundreds of people filled the Vancouver United Church of Christ. Soft music played in the background as people found their seats inside.
3: I remember going to that vigil at the church and... uh,
2: Lyndon Walls, a transgender community member who had closely followed Nikki's case for six months, arrived at the church as a show of support for the family and to honor Nikki.
3: There was so many people I had to park, like, down the road, and it was raining, raining, raining. And there was a line to get in, um, and it was kind of standing room only.
2: Local news crews were there, too. They filled every seat to remember Nikki Kuhnhausen. They recorded video of people as they wiped away tears. She was a rainbow of light. And listened to speakers who addressed this senseless murder of a transgender teenager.
1: We are painfully aware of the violence and harm
3: against transgendered
1: and gender-diverse people.
3: The grief in that room, it was kind of a devastating blow to the community. You know, I think we live in a a bubble of the Northwest that says that we're safe to move about in our communities and in our world without any physical threat. And this was a pretty firm reminder that that isn't always the case, that not everyone values all of the humans and the diversity that the Northwest does hold.
2: People were still coming to terms with Nikki's violent death, trying to wrap their heads around the allegation that David Bogdanov, a man who had only just met Nikki, strangled her. And soon, they would have another shocking detail to process, something David's defense team would present about Nikki during trial.
4: Night.
2: I'm Ashley Korslund, You're listening to Should Be Alive, a KGW original podcast. Episode 4 of 6, Flight Risk. On the night of the vigil for Nikki Kuhnhausen, Lyndon Walls connected with other transgender activists in the community. It was the first time they all had a shared space to grieve and to process what had happened. Although Lyndon never knew Nikki, her story and her death became very personal for them. Until adulthood, Lyndon never felt comfortable or safe being open about their own gender identity.
3: I am a survivor of conversion therapy. Um, I was involved in evangelical churches and knew early on that I was gay a lesbian at the time, um, had not even conceptualized the idea of gender, but went through conversion therapy and some pretty harsh religious beliefs around sexuality. Um,
2: Lyndon grew up in Canada with parents who were not religious, but after moving to Tennessee, Lyndon became immersed in a church that did not tolerate homosexuality.
3: I found Jesus on my own at an evangelical church that had flashy lights and music in middle school uh, in Nashville, and then moved to Colorado Springs. In Colorado, church elders forced Lyndon into
2: conversion therapy to address what the church called homosexual desires. Lyndon was encouraged to use rubber bands and snap their skin as punishment whenever they had sinful thoughts
3: you know, if you're watching a movie, never watch a kissing scene, always avert your eyes, like just very rigid boundaries with a high level of confession required. If you had these thoughts, you had to call your person and confess them. And, you know, weekly counseling sessions uh, with one of their female pastors where we cast out demons, prayed over me for hours, had to confess all of my sexual partners and break the bonds and the, like, just very humiliating process. And they create this toxic shame where you're willing to comply because it means you don't experience that shame.
2: Even Lyndon's parents, who watched all of this from the outside, tried to encourage Lyndon to leave the church. Eventually, Lyndon had an arranged marriage of sorts to a man who was also in the church. The couple had two children. Then the day came when Lyndon felt strong enough to leave the church and its teachings. How did you break away from all of this?
3: Uh, Well, I had a kid and uh, I realized that if I wanted to have children who were empowered and enjoyed their lives, I needed to do that for myself. And I needed to show them that that was important. And I got to a point where I realized that I I can't live a fulfilled life if I'm continually basically abandoning myself throughout the process.
2: Living openly as transgender was monumental for Lyndon. But that didn't mean everything was easy. It was anything but. Sure, Lyndon was living their true gender identity and found a renewed sense of self, but there was still so much self-loathing and guilt to work through. And on top of that, discrimination and intolerance from others.
3: The the hatred can run deep, Um, and I think it shows up in little ways like getting spat at. Um, There's also, like, misgendering. (laughs) That happens all the time, and I don't think people realize how hard it is until you put them in that situation. And this
2: is all part of what drew Lyndon to Nikki's story. From an early age, Nikki had lived her life being openly and proudly trans, something that took Lyndon until adulthood to even begin accepting, something that's still a work in progress today. It was after attending Nikki's vigil that something sparked in Lyndon, a desire to get involved in something bigger, a call to action. That's when Lyndon officially became part of the Justice for Nikki task force, activists who teamed up to tell Nikki's story to more people.
3: When I came on, there was about seven of us from different parts of the community. Then there's a group of trans parents. They all have trans teenagers. They got involved in the task force at a, a larger amount. And so that, that was kind of when we started to actually have some momentum and could communicate.
2: The task force also gave Nikki's mom, Lisa, the support she needed to get justice for her daughter. What's your first memory of that group forming? Just a lot of
3: love and um, tenderness. and
2: uh, Here's Lisa.
3: A, a lot of um, Understanding and caring and, and really held me up when I couldn't hold myself up, you know.
2: And knowing she would soon face her daughter's accused killer in court, Lisa needed every ounce of support she could get.
5: My name is Kristen Arno. I'm a deputy prosecutor in Clark County. i currently assigned to our Children's Justice Center.
6: Uh, Colin Hayes, senior deputy prosecutor, uh, currently assigned to the appeals unit was working in the major crimes unit at the time that this case was being handled.
2: In January of 2020, prosecutors Kristen Arno and Colin Hayes were assigned to represent the state in David Bogdanov's trial. Right away, they started debriefing with detectives on the case, doing as much research on the investigation as they could.
6: You know, when, when an arrest first comes in, they, of course, do a, a probable cause statement, or at least in, in this county, in this state, they, they do that. So that's you know, the a real quick blurb about what the case is. So you read that, talk to the detectives, and then, you know, as you find time, read through the reports as they come in.
2: Based on the evidence, prosecutors charged David with second-degree murder.
5: Because the way the facts laid out that we didn't know his story about how everything happened, we weren't we weren't able to charge murder in the first degree because we didn't know how everything went down. We knew that it had gone down, but we didn't know the exact pattern or anything like that. So we weren't going to be able to prove premeditation.
2: What they did have is the cell phone cord found at Larch Mountain, where Nikki's remains were discovered. The cord was knotted around hair and a piece of bone from Nikki's neck. Prosecutors also knew David's phone had pinged in the same area the morning Nikki was with David. And they had those statements David made in his first police interview about gay and trans people.
7: Like I said, when I found out that that's who she is and I don't know how I didn't catch on sooner, but it must have been
1: because I was so drunk <laughs> drinking all night, you know, and then once when the subject came up somehow, whatever way that was, I I just got disgusted and I asked her to just get out. So for me, it's just very disturbing and disgusting when, when people are like this. I don't know.
2: All of these pieces helped prosecutors begin to form a picture that this murder was fueled by bias. And bottom line, you do feel he killed Nikki because she was trans. Yes. Absolutely. So the state added a second charge in the case, something called malicious harassment, which is Washington's hate crime charge.
1: The man accused of murdering a transgender teen appeared in court today.
2: A few weeks after David Bogdanov's arrest, he had a hearing to determine whether he would be able to post bail and be released until trial. And things got heated.
1: Dozens of the victim's supporters, they packed the Clark County courtroom.
2: The hearing was widely publicized and well attended. More than 100 of Nikki Kuhnhausen's loved ones and supporters lined up outside the Clark County courthouse in the rain. Some of them wore pink shirts that read, Justice for Nikki. There were so many people who wanted to be in the hearing that once the courtroom filled up, everyone else had to watch from a separate room in the basement of the courthouse. Even more people filed into the fourth floor of the building. They all watched on a closed-circuit TV system. Here's Superior Court Judge David Gregerson.
8: So obviously there were a lot of uh, news reports during that time and then we became aware of a lot of social media activity and interest and it became an issue where we were concerned about courthouse security and I had to liaise with our courthouse staff to make sure we handled that appropriately. We had information that there could be two or three hundred people, um, supporters of Nikki specifically, who might want to show and obviously we have a courtroom with limited capacity, it was not going to happen and uh, also some people from the defendant's uh, uh, community. It could be a, uh, is, uh, a Russian or religious community or a combination of the both. And it was an emotionally charged situation. So we were concerned first and foremost about security and safety for everyone.
2: Inside the courtroom, David Bogdanov wore an orange jumpsuit. His hands were shackled in front of him. He listened as senior deputy prosecutor Colin Hayes asked the judge to order no bail or a minimum of $6 million bail. Essentially, the state wanted to make it nearly impossible for David to bail out pending trial. Hayes argued that David had a propensity for violence and that he posed a risk to LGBTQ people. Nikki's mom, Lisa Woods, got up to speak, standing just a foot away from David.
4: The curse from us for no reason other than hatred.
2: She, too, asked the judge to deny bail.
4: It will never be the same again because he chose to
6: murder
1: my native girl.
2: Then came the judge's decision.
1: It's also
8: uh, a lot of hurt that he tweeted.
2: People in the overflow rooms were silent as they listened.
8: The going to set bail 750000
2: He set David's bail at $750,000. Nikki's supporters let out audible gasps in the courtroom. It wasn't what they'd hoped for. Here's Judge Gregerson.
8: So on the question of bail, um, the court has a specific body of law that governs how we consider when and under what circumstances to set bail. And there are a lot of factors that a judge has to take into account. The first thing you look at is you know, the seriousness of the charge, the strength of the information supporting the case, whether there's very strong evidence that would indicate guilt of a serious crime, or more, in this case, very much a circumstantial case presented at um, the first appearances. Then you look at things such as criminal history, you look at the likelihood of the person to reappear, uh, for the court proceedings, uh, and a multitude of other uh, factors that that go into account. So in this case, Mr. Bogdanov, as I recall, had zero in the way of criminal history, which was certainly a factor that would weigh in his favor. On the other hand, the strongest factor was we had a very serious allegation of a crime here, albeit framed in a somewhat circumstantial presentation um, at uh, at his bail hearing. And one of the functions of a judge is to act as that filter between, you know, what could be an angry mob and and a defendant, right? We're supposed to be the cooling vessel and to rationally and coolly make a decision uh, regarding bail.
2: Judge Gregerson knew emotions were running high and faced criticism for setting bail much lower than what the state and Nikki's family asked for.
1: The group was shocked. Supporters could be seen visibly upset as they left the courtroom. Someone tears that the man who's accused of murdering Nikki could post bail and be free.
3: $750,000 for a teenager's life.
8: But sometimes it's the media report gets out and it doesn't easily convert to a lengthy understanding of that legal analysis. It's a soundbite. Oh, my gosh, the judge let a murderer out. You know, or, uh, number one, I didn't let him out. Uh, number two, I set pretty substantial bail at 750000 Number
2: three, The veteran judge even received a nasty voicemail on his office phone about the bail.
4: Message
9: one.
7: Hey, I'm not expecting a call back. I just wanted to let Judge Gregerson know that he's a fighting sack of shit for setting bail on a hate crime, murder against a minor, and hopefully I'll have a shit day.
8: Again, it's not pleasant to receive that, but you have to have a thick skin in this job and you can understand why, again, there's a lot of anxiety and mistrust of the system given the the numbers and the history on these kinds of cases.
2: I would imagine it's hard not to take that personally to some level, though, when you're invested this um, deeply in this community and in this court system.
8: Correct. And that's why, from a security standpoint, we wanted to be careful. We knew that there was a large degree of interest and there were some impassioned people and they numbered sometimes in the dozens or in the hundreds. And so we had to be extra cautious. We did not want to jeopardize the dignity and integrity of the trial process based upon you know anybody, no matter what side or some third side that we don't know about, somebody that would want to interrupt the proceedings. It could result in a mistrial and, and disrupt what we're trying to do, which is to be the response of the community and the accountability under the criminal laws. There is not a lot of
0: trust in law enforcement
2: After the bail hearing, Nikki's supporters gathered outside the courthouse. They chanted, justice for Nikki, as rain fell on their umbrellas.
3: I feel like the justice system just failed my baby one more time. It's like you're being murdered all over again.
2: They feared David Bogdanov would soon be out of jail. A free man.
0: Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy?
2: David Bogdanov never was able to post the 10% of the $750,000 bail to get out of jail pending trial. Still, the issue of his bail would be revisited two months after that initial hearing. By March of 2020, police had discovered information that David had traveled to Ukraine on the day Nikki died.
8: When it was learned by the prosecution...
2: Here's Judge Gregerson.
8: ...and brought to the court's attention that he had left the country the day of the alleged crime on a one-way ticket to Ukraine. And obviously that was a, 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 from the state standpoint, and I think the court agreed that was a game changer.
2: Prosecutors argued that this trip illustrated David was a potential flight risk. They asked the judge to increase David's bail from $750,000 to $6 million. David's defense attorney argued the $750,000 was appropriate and that David would surrender his passport if he posted bail to ensure he wouldn't be able to leave the country. Judge Gregerson ultimately agreed with the prosecution's request to increase the bail, but wouldn't go as high as $6 million. He set the bail at $2 million, and David remained behind bars. By the spring of 2020, prosecutors Arnaud and Hayes were laser focused on moving the case forward to trial.
5: Um, we had thousands of photos. We had probably over an hour of just interviews of, of David. So there was a lot of discovery to review.
6: There's at least 3,000 pages of yeah. various documents that went out as discovery provided to the defense in the case.
2: The payer also interviewed close to 50 witnesses and experts. On average, each of those interviews lasted more than an hour.
6: I think it would be unusual for a case like this big to go to trial within a year of it actually being charged. It's probably the average is like one to two years. Unfortunately, it takes that long.
2: What they didn't know at the time is that the COVID pandemic was about to enter the picture. Just three months into prosecutors' work on the case, pandemic shutdowns brought the justice system to a virtual standstill and caused a backlog of cases in Clark County, Washington to grow even larger.:
1: At that point, um...
2: Despite the slowdowns caused by the pandemic, yeah, once... Vancouver Police detective Dave Jensen was busy working on his own investigation. He wanted to know more about David Bogdanov's trip to Kiev, Ukraine. At
1: this point, I am writing search warrants for just about everything to find uh, information about the murder and who he might have talked to, um, anything he might have said about it.
2: One of those warrants was for David's email account and his internet search history. The records showed he had originally searched for a round-trip ticket.
1: It showed his first search being a two-way ticket search, exactly like two weeks apart. But then he corrected it.
2: David changed it to a one-way plane ticket from Portland, Oregon to Kyiv.
1: So I could see that thought process going on, as well as the ticket being booked on that day.
2: Jensen also got records from Apple showing David's iCloud account, including photos he took while on the run.
1: I found pictures from the airport. And also found pictures where he was sitting on the airplane, taking a photo of his in-flight meal, with his screen, with some movie playing. So I think I might have called that something like "luxury cowardice or something. But uh... so flying off to Ukraine, and then I also found a whole lot of photos of museums and monuments and things in Kiev. All of them were of just of him. Uh, One thing I noticed when I went after his social media was that he was very into posting lifestyle photos. Fancy cars, drinks, food, destinations, places, you know, basically trying to look like an Instagram influencer type of accounts, you know, lots of posed things. On his trip to Ukraine... He went completely dark on social media.
2: Some of the photos stored in David's iCloud account were from a club he went to in Ukraine. It was for some sort of promotional event for Bacardi Rum.
1: And then they later sent a photo of you of your your memory with that. It's just a Bacardi promotional thing. And one of those emails was sent to him after he participated in this on-site promotional.
2: What did you make of this trip to Ukraine. He, he books a flight the night he dumps Nikki's body. Hours later, takes off to Ukraine. He's gone for weeks. He seems like he's out there partying. Yes.
1: Alone. I think that it was an in-the-moment, poorly thought-out attempt to simply flee. And I, I think what you need to understand about David Bogdanov is that you know he wasn't really good with the money management. You know, he liked to live this and portray a very opulent and sophisticated lifestyle. And when he would work, he would make really, really good money. And he would come into pretty large sums of cash from doing custom flooring in nice, either nice remodels or spec houses. So he would walk away with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars from these jobs, and then he would just sort of spend it. So you have a guy who's running this successful business where he makes a lot of money, where he's sleeping on his brother's couch. Right. I found lots of voicemails on his account that were for creditors. So he owed a lot of people money. So what I suspect is is that he simply went off to Ukraine hoping, you know, he could just go out there and make a life or whatever. And once he got there, probably realized he can't stay there.
2: Do you think he's remorseful? Yes. Or... Or because he got caught? Because he got caught.
1: This was a crime that he didn't plan. He didn't go out that night saying, I'm going to go find a, a, a trans girl. I'm going to murder her. Okay. So, I mean, this, so this is him cleaning up after the fact. Uh, a normal thinking person or a person, you know, might say, I made a horrible mistake and I should come clean. You know, I was, I was drunk and this this happened. Uh, But he, for whatever reason, decided that nobody can ever know of this, and he wanted to sweep the whole thing under the rug. And he was willing to take some, some measures of dishonesty to do that.
2: We did reach out to David Bogdanov and his family members for interviews. We've never gotten a response. His defense attorneys also declined to be interviewed. But letters written to the court on David's behalf give us some insight into his past. Many came from his siblings, friends, and people from his church. They illustrate a young man who had to provide for his large family at an early age. After his father's company crumbled because of the 2008 recession, David became a primary provider for his nearly dozen siblings. He went to college, but left to focus on the business and support his family. Here are some of the things David's loved ones wrote in letters to the court. These are being read by voice actors.
1: When I heard that my brother was in jail, in charge of the horrible crime, I was shocked because David wouldn't be capable of committing such a deed. He respected everyone in his community and never judged anyone for
8: who they are. In the news, there were reports he was dealing with certain addictions, such as alcohol abuse. The truth is, I have never seen him angry or depressed or sharing any words of having transphobia.
9: I spent many years
5: watching him grow from the high school ministry. He would share his desire to lead a good life and make a positive impact. David was involved each year at kids' camp at our church.
1: We grew up in a loving and godly family with parents that supported and taught us right from wrong.
2: Another letter was from David's mother.
3: I'm David's mom. I have 12 kids. All my life I've dedicated myself to my children. I've taught them to love one another, be kind, affectionate, and respectful to everyone around. David was a very calm, gentle, sweet, and kind-hearted child. He never hurt or bullied his siblings or kids at school. I will never believe what my son is being accused of. This could not be.
2: She also wrote about her own experience dealing with the loss of a child. In 2007, her daughter... And David's sister was murdered. Aya Bogdanov was just 21 years old. She was killed by a massage school classmate, a man she considered a friend. On November 14, 2007, Aya arranged to meet with 30-year-old Michael Kane Buxton to practice for their massage therapy class like they had done several times before. According to investigators, Michael left his house with a knife, masking tape, restraints, bleach, and a heavy flashlight. When he got to Aya's Portland area home, he gagged her with her own sock and taped her mouth shut before tying her nude body to a portable massage table. He sexually assaulted her and slit her throat. Michael then set the house on fire. He fled the state, but was eventually arrested and charged with first-degree murder for the grisly crime. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison.
9: I was a reporter at the Oregonian for about 14 years.
2: Kate Taylor covered Aya's murder for the Oregonian newspaper. It was one of her last assignments before leaving the industry.
9: Especially when something like this was so senseless.
2: And to this day, it's one Kate has never been able to forget, even 15 years later.
9: So that's what stuck with me. I've never seen grief like that. I mean, that was so clear to me. It was the worst.
2: After Aya's murder, Kate was invited to report on an intimate vigil at the Bogdanov family home. She mostly talked with Aya's father, Yuri, and some of Aya's 11 siblings. Kate does not recall meeting David Bogdanov at the vigil. He would have been around 12 years old at the time.
9: But her mother, um, her mother is what haunts me because she looked like I imagine I would feel if something like this had happened to my child. She looked as if she was just hollowed out and had no interest in newspapers or reporters or the people around her or hearing anything comforting, something apocalyptically awful had happened to her beautiful child. And she knew that her child had suffered and and had died in this horrible way. And there's just nothing to do with that. And And just the way she was like a statue, You know, said very few words, but just tears sliding down her face. And I could just see it. It was like end-of-the-world grief.
2: Through her reporting, Kate learned the Bogdanov family had emigrated from Russia in the early 1990s to escape political and religious persecution. They had dreams of a better and safer life in America.
9: I think they left in 1993, Um, it was after the breakup of the Soviet Union and Chechnya was just in political and economic chaos, corruption and crime were rampant and people were suffering badly. Many people and families were unemployed and dealing with poverty and uh, religious persecution, all kinds of issues. Gangs in Aya's neighborhood were bullying and abusing families and just terrorizing people. Um, and nobody was, these, this is how the father described it, nobody was there to stop it. And on top of that, um, they, the, their family is Christian, and, and he said that they faced particular religious persecution.
2: Kate recalls one particular story that Yuri, David and Aya's father, shared with her during the vigil. He detailed what had been the catalyst for the family's move to the U.S.
9: And the last straw was an incident that occurred when he was in his car with his with Aya in the back seat, and I think she was about uh, four or three at that time, and they were driving and they got to a red light or something and when the car stopped for a moment a gunman broke one of the windows and forced his way into the passenger seat and he made the dad drive uh, somewhere off road and robbed them and then held the gun to the dad's head for a very long moment and finally said "I, I planned to shoot you in the head but I'm deciding not to because you have a sweet little daughter. And in that way, the father considered Aya to be his, his own little guardian angel. And she had, in a way, saved his life. And that's why it was unbearable to him that he hadn't been there to stop her killer.
2: After all, they had come to America for the safety it provided, or at least the illusion of it and Aya's murder tore the family up. During a court hearing, Yuri Bogdanov spoke to his daughter's killer. He said, I wish for you to go through everything Aya went. I wish that your brothers and sisters and relatives could go through what we went. Like Nikki Kuhnhausen's family, the Bogdanovs had been through the trauma of losing a family member. And now they found themselves on the opposite end of the experience. David Bogdanov's trial was originally set to begin in the summer of 2020, but because of the pandemic, it didn't happen until August of 2021, more than two years after Nikki's death. My name is Brittany. I
4: live in Vancouver, Washington, and I was a juror on the Nikki Kuhnhausen case.
2: Several weeks before the trial was set to begin, jury summons were mailed out across Clark County, Washington. One of them arrived in Brittany's mailbox. It was a hot early August day. Brittany, who didn't want us to use her last name, opened an official letter from Clark County Superior Court. She'd been summoned for jury selection in the past, so she assumed that's what this letter was.
4: When I got the letter this time, you know, I was kind of like, oh, this has happened before. I doubt that I'm going to have to actually go in.
2: Even though she didn't think it would turn into anything, Brittany followed through with the instructions in the letter. She was advised to call the court on August 15th to see if she had been chosen for jury selection.
4: So um, come the night before the 15th, I call and they called my group number. And she was. And so that was kind of the beginning of it all.
2: It all happened quickly. The next morning, Brittany drove to the courthouse and went inside. She walked down a long hallway to a courtroom where she joined a few dozen others. They all wore masks as they filed into rows of seats for jury selection.
8: Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Judge Gregerson. I want to welcome you into Clark County Superior Court. We are in a uh, specific courtroom today for jury selection proceeding. Serving as a juror is one of the most critical exercises of your rights and responsibilities under our constitutional form of government.
2: Attorneys started asking questions.
10: Did anybody get really excited when they got their jury summons? Number nine. Would you like to be a juror?
2: No. Inquiring about things like the prospective jurors' pass. Have you, a close friend or family member, ever been arrested or... Their thoughts on the police.
7: Do you believe everything that you read about the police?
2: Pretty much. My son is a police officer. Okay. Their opinion of the criminal justice system. You're uh, 22. I think it's too lenient. I think um, they're... There should be harsher punishment.
7: There's too much favor going to the criminal.
2: And ultimately, if they could be impartial.
7: Uh, Number three, same question. You're probably convinced, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. Do you convict the defendant?
10: Anything about that situation that would make it hard for you to be fair? No. Okay. Thank
2: you. Are the stakes higher in a hate crime case when it comes to finding the right jury? I mean, what was jury selection like? Um, it's definitely different. We Here are prosecutors Kristen Arnault and Colin Hayes.
5: There's more that you're going to have to talk about, more that you have to discuss with people. And um, so we did a what's called a questionnaire. So it was written questions for the jury to kind of feel out where they were at as far as their ideas on, on LGBTQI rights. And um, we were a little surprised by some of the responses that we got, but more or less... Um, People were very honest and forthright, and um, that's kind of how we were able to approach that, and then we just dis- discussed it with them more in detail.
2: W- can you elaborate on what you were surprised by? One of them was,
6: do you have any negative thoughts or beliefs regarding those who are transgender, gay, bisexual, uh, something very close to those words, and some people had um, religious reservations, some people just didn't agree with that, you know, as they put it, lifestyle uh, and things of that sort. So yeah, that was just a a challenge in thinking about how we would best go about finding out who might be able to look at this fairly and and who might have issues putting aside uh, biases that they might have against those in the LGBTQ community.
2: Attorneys for both the prosecution and defense whittled away at the large group of prospective jurors. Eventually, they identified a list of 12 people who would sit on the jury. I really
4: did think I wasn't going to be chosen.
2: Brittany was one of them.
4: And then it was like literally last second timing.
2: She became juror number three. And then they, they picked me. Brittany didn't know a lot about the case just yet. She hadn't even heard the names Nikki Kuhnhausen or David Bogdanoff, but she quickly started to understand the complexity and weight of the case at hand.
4: I didn't know much at all. Um, I knew they had told me it was like a second-degree murder case, and that was pretty much it. But after they chose the jury, that's when they kind of introduced you know, what happened? A transgender teen was murdered by David Bagnadov.
6: You know, in a big case like this, we would meet with the detectives several times throughout the case to kind of check in on anything that we believe might still need to be looked into, discuss evidence.
2: Ahead of trial, deputy prosecutors Hayes and Arno were busy finalizing the evidence and exhibits they planned to show the jury.
6: And we had to prepare all the exhibits we would use at trial, decide which photos we were going to try to emit, which videos, the best ways to present evidence to a jury, best, you the know, best way that they might receive all this information and make sense of it, so.
2: They had largely built their case around the premise that they had to prove David was the one who killed Nikki. But just before the trial started, the defense team threw a curveball. David was going to claim self-defense
6: here we didn't get any inkling or mention of that until about two weeks prior to trial so
5: I think we both were a little shocked it changed how we approached the case it changes um, you know it changes some of the arguments that are going to come in versus what's not going to come in and that was kind of our main concern was what was going to end up coming in because of the self-defense
2: they were about to find out. Okay. Opening statements began on August 17th of 2021.
8: All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna ask then that you please give your attention to Mr. Hayes, who will give the opening uh, statement on behalf of the state of Washington. Mr. Hayes.
10: As the defendant left Nikki's lifeless 17-year-old body in the large mountain woods,
8: he had decisions to
10: make, whether to leave behind the phone cord that he had used to strangle her with, whether to show up to work that day, whether to flee the area, his victim, Nikki, would never get to make another decision again. He made sure of that. The defendant murdered Nikki after finding out she was transgender. The defendant murdered Nikki because his respect for human life was outweighed by his hatred for those who are gay and those who are transgender.
2: Prosecutor Hayes spoke for 14 minutes, ending with this. The evidence
10: is going to show that his actions in the hours, days, and months. Following Nikki's murder, are not consistent with a person who has done nothing wrong or a person who has nothing to hide. At the end of this trial, after you've heard all the evidence and the judge has told you the law that applies to this case, I'm going to come back again in front of you and ask you to find him guilty of murder in the second degree and guilty of malicious harassment for taking Nikki's life and cutting
8: what was already such a short life even shorter. Thank you. All right, thank you, Mr. Hayes. Uh, then... Now, ladies and gentlemen, please give your attentions to Mr. McAleer,
2: who will give a defense opening statement, and again... Mr. David's attorneys had their turn.
7: Good morning again. Now that you hear what the state believes the evidence will show, um, our take on the case is a little different. The state's case is going to be made up of a lot of circumstantial evidence such as digital proof from one form to another of how they met, where they met, um, ultimately where Nikki's remains were found. This is not inconsistent with a lot of the things that they're gonna present with our case. I'd like you to think of this case as a novel. A novel builds a story, introduces characters, and sets the scene. But you're not done until you've read the whole book. This particular case There's an ending that the state doesn't have.
2: An ending the defense said only David Bogdanov could provide.
7: The only person who knows what happened that night is Mr. Bogdanov. Mr. Bogdanov believes it's important that he tell you what happened. He tell you exactly what happened and he will testify to what happened that night we wanted to let you know that we may not take much objection with a lot of the state's routine evidence in this case because we don't have a burden to prove Mr. Bogdanov is considered innocent until proven guilty, and it's all part of the story. But as we all agreed in jury selection, we're all gonna wait to the end because if you've read a novel, you often know that what the novel says and how it ends is often different from what it appears from the outset. So now I ask that you sit back and let the state begin to tell the story. But again, stay tuned to the end where we believe once you've heard everything, I'm gonna come back and ask you to find him not guilty of both charges. And I hope that you'll give him that verdict. Thank you.
2: And quite a story the jury would get. One that would take surprising twists and turns.
5: When the defense came in, they had a picture of a gun, so we knew, obviously, a gun was going to be involved. They had a picture of a generic gold Audi, so that's when we found out that that was going to be in play. And they had mentioned in pretrial motions that he was going to describe that she had consumed mess in front of him, and that's about all we knew.
2: Drugs, an unprovoked attack, and a gun. All part of the story David was about to tell. His professed reason for killing Nikki Kuhnhausen next time on Should Be Alive.
7: You're in the backseat with Nikki, the two of you. What happens next? Um, she lunges at me and hits me across the face. She's jumping for my gun. At this point, the overwhelming feeling and thought was like a fight-or-flight mode just kicks in. And all I can think is, oh, my God, I'm going to get shot right now. So was it your intention to hurt Nikki? never so you believe that she would have killed you no doubt yes
2: should be alive is a KGW and Vault Studios production please follow and leave us a rating or review we've got a lot more information about this case including videos and pictures on KGW.com slash should be alive and on the KGW YouTube page
9: this is our-
2: This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin and Nick Bieber. Audio assistance by Andy Thomas and Vince Jones, and digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and Promotion by Will Mayhan and Jennifer Woodruff. Our Tegna legal counsel is Will Herman. Special thanks to Lyndon Walls with Idea Stack Creative, KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retzinas, and the entire KGW staff. This is our- And if you like this show, check out our other podcasts, Urge to Kill and The Yellow Car.